Amen. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron. I have the privilege and joy of being a part of the team here at Wellspring. It's really good to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning, wherever you're at. We're really grateful that you would take the time this Sunday to be with us together. Now, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to actually turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be this morning, and just really excited to dive into this passage with you together. But before we get there, I want to talk about something real briefly that I came across a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I was kind of looking online and came across the front page of Time Magazine. And on Time Magazine, they had the kind of in big font, 2020 in big black letters with a big red X through it with the subtitle, The Worst Year Ever. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you, you know, resonate with that a little bit. 2020 with the big red X through it, the worst year ever. Now, what was interesting is I learned that throughout the history of Time Magazine, there's only been a handful of times where they've actually put a red X through anything. And one of the first ones was uh, Hitler back in World War II. He got a big red X through his face. Uh, Saddam Hussein in 2003 received that. And then Osama bin Laden in 2011. So needless to say, 2020 isn't an all that great of company with a big red X through it. Now, maybe again, like you resonate with that and you, you recognize that 2020 has been a really hard year. And maybe you kind of feel like that a little bit this morning. You just want to stick a big red X through 2020 and move on to something new and something different. And I, I get that, right? 2020 has been hard. It's been a difficult year. There's been a, a lot of disappointment. There's been a lot of hurt. There's been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of emotion, a lot of pain that we've all experienced to a certain degree or another. And as we kind of close this year out, this is the last Sunday of 2020 and kind of gear up for 2021, I want to take us again to the scriptures. I want to take us to Luke 24 because I believe there's a lot happening in this story that really speaks to kind of where we're at in this moment and also where I believe Jesus hopefully is taking us and where he's leading and guiding us. So Luke 24 this morning. Now, normally when I kind of work through a passage, some of you might think I have like the spiritual gift of alliteration and I just kind of break it down with the same sort of letter that kind of matches and, and, and and fits all nice and neat, but today I want to actually just walk through the story and let the story be the story and allow the narrative of the story to kind of unfold. And really, I want to invite you there's going to be two disciples in this story. I want to really invite you to imagine yourself being one of these two disciples on the road with Jesus here in Luke 24. So let's pick up the story in chapter, thir- or tw- chapter 24, verse 13. The author Luke writes this. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things. Now, kind of right off the bat, we're jumping right into the middle of an ongoing story. What Luke is referring to is this is the first Easter Sunday. Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected, but for the most part, as of this moment right now, most of Jesus' disciples do not know that Jesus has been resurrected. So there's these two disciples going on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking about, quote, these things. These things referring to Jesus' crucifixion just a few days ago. And then verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, notice how emphatic the text is. It's Jesus himself drew near to these disciples and went with them. But look at verse 16. This is key. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In verse 17, he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. 
Now notice, notice the text again, verse 16. You have, here you have a story of two disciples walking away from Jerusalem to this town called Emmaus. And Jesus himself draws near to them in their moment of uncertainty and disappointment. And Jesus asks them, what are you, what are you talking about? What, what conversation are you having here? And notice again the text says, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17 says they stood still there looking sad. Here you have a story of two disciples of Jesus walking in sadness and disappointment and don't recognize that Jesus is right there with them in that moment. I mean, how many of us this morning might feel like that a little bit? Walking, not really sure where we're going, in a moment of sadness, in a moment of disappointment, and not really able to recognize and see that Jesus is right there with us in that moment. I mean, I can't imagine, I can't, I can't help but imagine to think about, is it possible to be walking, so to speak, to be in a season of sadness and disappointment and not recognize that Jesus is right there with us in that moment? I think Luke would say, yes, it is possible. And this is a beautiful story about how two disciples of Jesus, in a moment of sadness and disappointment, at least initially, don't recognize that Jesus is right there with them. You know, I think we've all experienced some level of sadness and disappointment in 2020. Some level of kind of walking and wandering and not exactly sure how this is all going to play out, not exactly sure what to do next, and kind of at a loss a little bit. And maybe like these two disciples, as we'll see, that you really want to be with Jesus. You really want to draw close to him. You really want to experience and know him in deep and profound ways, yet it's often hard to recognize where he's at work. And this story, I think, is a beautiful invitation into that moment and to recognize and see how does Jesus interact in those moments. Look with me at verse 18. Then one of them, one of the two disciples named Cleopas, answered him and said, Are you the only visitor of Jerusalem who does not know what things have happened there in these days? Now, I love Jesus' response, verse 19. He just replies, what things? Now, think about this for a second. Kind of the irony in that, that statement that Jesus, that question that Jesus asked, what things? I mean, are you kidding me? Jesus is the thing that happened on this Easter weekend. Jesus is the thing that happened over these past few days. And Jesus asks, what things? But the disciples replied and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped. Now, pause right there for a second. Here you have Jesus, and notice in that little section of scripture we just read, the only times Jesus speaks, he asks questions. He asks two questions. Now, what's going on here? Well, on one level, this is just Jesus 101. If you've kind of read through the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus is interacting with people, so often he simply just asks questions over and over and over again. But in particular, here in Luke 24, I think there's something really profound happening here. Where again, you have the two disciples, they're sad, they're disappointed, they have the kind of their hopes crushed, so to speak. They had thought Jesus was going to do one thing, but they don't recognize that Jesus actually is the Savior and he's back from there. They don't recognize that yet. And in this moment of disappointment, Jesus is asking them questions. He's allowing them, I think, to process. He's allowing them and giving them the space to think, to verbalize, to explain what's really going on on the inside. 
How are they really feeling? What's really troubling them in their mind? What's really kind of beneath the surface as they're kind of walking? And here Jesus, he doesn't come to these two disciples who are disappointed and sad. He doesn't kind of beat them over the head with sort of like a truth bomb and just kind of be like, you know, why haven't you figured this out? Why haven't you gotten your act together? Why haven't you just been paying attention to all the things I've been saying? Because Jesus had been saying that he would suffer and die. He doesn't do that. He asks these questions and allowing them and drawing these disciples into the conversation, allowing them to process and to verbalize and to speak what's really going on beneath the surface. And I think Jesus would invite us to a similar thing. That on one level, yes, the pace of life in 2020 perhaps has slowed down for many of us. And yet at the same time, the craziness of everything happening in the news and in politics, and with the pandemic, and the uncertainty of everything that's going to happen as we enter into the new year, it, seems, it still seems like life is just so frantic and crazy. But here in the text, the text says in verse 17 that the disciples stood still, they slowed down, and Jesus was inviting them and is inviting them to process, to verbalize, to, to think about what's really bothering them, what's really troubling them on the inside. But look what happens next, verse 21. The disciples say this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but here you have, as Jesus is giving space for these disciples to process and to verbalize and to think about what's really happening and giving them a chance to share what's on their hearts, Jesus is, is having this conversation with them and these two disciples, they're revealing kind of why they are sad. They're revealing kind of the core of their disappointment. They're revealing what's really going on beneath the surface. And it all hinges on verse 21. Where, quote, but we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. Now think about that line with me for a second. Here's a question for you, yes or no. Did Jesus redeem Israel on that first Easter weekend? Yes. For sure, right? We recognize that Jesus is the redeemer of the world, and not just of Israel, but of the entire world. So yes, Jesus did redeem Israel. But notice in their language, in verse 21, the disciples, for them, they don't think Jesus redeemed Israel. They don't think that a crucified and dead Messiah was the way that God was going to redeem and save Israel. For them, that was a complete category breaker. And for them, this is revealing their assumptions and their preconceptions of what it means for Jesus to redeem a people. They have this particular narrative that in order for Jesus to redeem, it's going to mean not dying. It's going to mean not suffering. It's going to mean that there's not going to be any hardship. Now, why is this the case? I mean, think about this for a second. It all really hinges on that word redeem in verse 21. That's a good Bible word, right? Redeem. You know, how often do we actually use that word outside of perhaps church and Christian circles? Well, a little bit here and there. You know, pick your movie of choice. I guess it's in, you know, a fair amount of movie titles. But for the most part, that word redeem is a very kind of churchy kind of word. 
But what exactly do we mean? What does the Bible mean when talking about redeem and redemption? Now, hang in with me for a second, because this is really important to kind of get at what Jesus is doing in this text. It's beautiful. Now, let me ask a question instead of this way. Pretend like you're going to have a party this week, right? And, you know, New Year's Eve, right? New Year's Eve party, you're going to hang out with some friends. Again, hypothetical scenario, because we're not really supposed to be doing that. But hypothetical scenario, you're gathering with some friends for New Year's Eve, and you're looking to have a fun, nice kind of party trivia game, right? And you need a couple trivia questions for your party. And here's a trivia question for you, just trying to help you out. If you're reading through the Bible, starting in Genesis and going to the right, where is the first time in Scripture that the word redeem appears? Where's the first time in Scripture that we hear of this concept of redeem? Think about it for a second. It's in the second book of the Bible, the Exodus. And in particular, if you want to get really technical, it's in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Exodus 6, 6. The first time this word redeem appears in the Scriptures. And it's in a conversation between God and Moses who would lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And God says to Moses in Exodus 6, verse 6, God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and deliver you with mighty acts of judgment against the Egyptians. And it's this beautiful story, the Exodus is, of God's work of redemption. God's work of redemption, of defeating the oppressor, of defeating the Egyptians, delivering his people, the children of Israel, out of slavery, out of bondage, into victory, and into the promised land as they cross through the Red Sea and journey on to what God has for them. And this is the the kind of core biblical concept, the core story behind this word redemption. So as you continue reading all throughout the Old Testament, when the biblical authors are talking about redeem and redemption, they most often have the story of the Exodus in the back of their minds. And for a first century Jewish person, and in particular these disciples of Jesus, being raised on the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, that had just as a part of their core worldview, the story of the Exodus, God's massive act of redemption. You have that whole narrative in the back of your head of God defeating the oppressor, God defeating the Egyptians, and delivering your people out of slavery. Fast forward to Jesus' day. In Jesus, your hope is placed on him to redeem your people, to redeem Israel. Now sympathize with these people for a second. If you're a first century disciple of Jesus, and you're hoping that Jesus is going to redeem Israel, what's the first item of business for Jesus to do in that moment? What is Jesus supposed to do according to your sort of narrative, your sort of worldview of what it means to redeem a people? I mean, think about it like this. Who is Egypt in Jesus' day? Who is the big bad oppressor in Jesus' day? It's not Egypt. It's Rome. And if you're hoping that Jesus is the redeemer, is the Messiah... Jesus, I mean, for goodness sakes, he comes into Jerusalem on Passover weekend, which celebrates and commemorates this story, the Exodus. And you're hoping that he is going to redeem Israel? What's the first item of business upon entering into Jerusalem? I mean, defeat the Romans, right? Get the Romans out. Get the oppressor out. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. And at the same time, Jesus firmly believed that he was redeeming Israel, that he was saving Israel. And it all comes back to this kind of 
core basic idea here. That here you have, on one hand, the disciples of Jesus. They're in a state of sadness and disappointment. They're unsure of kind of what's going to happen. They've kind of had their hopes crushed, if you will. But beneath the surface of that, even though they're walking with Jesus and unable to see him, kind of even a layer beneath that, we find out it's because they have these assumptions about Jesus that don't actually line up with who Jesus is. And I can't help but wonder, thinking about our own sort of modern life, our own modern context, how easy it is to be kind of walking with Jesus, so to speak, but not actually recognizing that he's right there with us, that he's right there present with us. And at the same time, how many of us have certain assumptions and ideas of who Jesus is supposed to be that may or may not actually line up with who he actually is? That we sometimes want to pigeonhole Jesus to fit sort of our narrative of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what Jesus is supposed to be like, and how maybe those assumptions get in the way of actually seeing who he really is. But come back with me to the text, because how does then Jesus respond to this disappointment, to this sadness, to these misplaced assumptions? I think this is a beautiful, beautiful narrative here. Look with me at the text, starting in verse 25. Look at how Jesus responds. Jesus says in verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Notice with me, this is key. In the midst of disappointment, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of being there with Jesus, but not really recognizing that it's Jesus who is right there with them, what does Jesus do? How does Jesus come alongside them? He brings them back to the text. He brings them back to the scriptures. He brings them back to what we would call the Old Testament. That line there in verse 27, Moses and all the prophets, is a first century Jewish way of referring to what we call the Old Testament. Moses in particular, that that phrase there, refers to the first five books of, of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The book of Moses, if you will. And then the prophets refer to essentially the rest of the library of the Old Testament. Because for us, in our kind of Christian way of thinking, we might think of the prophets as specifically things like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But for the Jewish thinker, the prophets were essentially all the writers of Scripture. Moses was considered a prophet. David was considered a prophet. And all the the rest that we might naturally think as prophets. So the point being is that, again, Jesus is bringing these two disciples in a moment of sadness and disappointment back to the Scriptures. And I can't emphasize this enough. As difficult and as hard and as disappointing as perhaps life has been over the past few months, I can't help but wonder how much Jesus is wanting to draw us back to his word, draw us back to the scriptures. Friends, this is so key. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be one who engages with the scriptures on a regular basis. Jesus, all throughout his ministry, is constantly quoting from and alluding to the scriptures So many of his parables and his teachings are based off of a prior understanding of the Old Testament. And for Jesus himself, he had a high, high view of what we call the Old Testament. And is saying right here, I mean, to be a fly on the wall in this scene right here, right? Can you imagine being these two disciples? 
And here is Jesus opening up the Old Testament to them, showing how the whole thing points to him. How would you like to be there for that Bible study? That would be amazing to hear Jesus expound and explain the scriptures, to explain the Old Testament and how it all points to him. And friends, one thing I'm really excited about, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring us to Luke 24 is because to kind of help us get ready for 2021 in particular, where we're going with our teaching series in 2021. Starting in a couple weeks, we're going to be going through, for most of 2021, through the Old Testament. We're going to start right in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and kind of work our way through. And we're going to see how the, the whole Old Testament is leading and pointing us to Jesus. And I am so, so excited to journey with this, to go through the Old Testament. I mean, I get it, guys. The Old Testament is confusing. It can be hard. I mean, by page three, you have a talking snake. There's all these weird laws in Leviticus, and there's all these kind of strange and weird narratives all throughout the world. I get it. The Old Testament can be confusing. But friends, as followers of Jesus, a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus through the scriptures that Jesus himself read and cherished. To, to unpack and to see that Jesus is drawing himself and drawing, drawing us back to himself through the scriptures, and in particular, the Old Testament. So I'm just really excited about that. And in particular, recognizing how vital it is for us as his followers to be regularly engaged with the scriptures. Friends, there's no gimmicks, there's no tricks, there's no like, you know, secret sauce for 2021 that I'm going to stand up here and give to you this morning. It's very simple. As followers of Jesus, my invitation to you, I would say God's invitation to you, is to be regularly engaged with the scriptures as a way of following Jesus. It's that simple. And I, I want to encourage us and to recognize that, yes, we're called to follow him in so many ways. Yes, for sure. But the scriptures have to be a core piece of, of that puzzle, a core piece of our apprenticeship to Jesus. Jesus said himself, quoting from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Friends, if we are not regularly engaged with the scriptures, we will starve. We will not flourish as disciples of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher from a few centuries ago, had this really great quote. He says that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Kind of getting at this idea that someone who's really engaged with the text, who's with in Jesus in the text, diving into the scriptures, cherishing the scriptures to the point where you've seen those people that have Bibles that are highlighted and marked and pages are falling out because they've just cherished what God's word has to say to them. And that they so love God's word, that they're so engaged with God's word, that for them they have this sense of peace and calm and assurance that God is with them and God is for them. Yeah, their lives aren't perfect. No one's life is. But more often than not, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life is not falling apart. Now here's the thing. There's tremendous payoff for this. Notice, later on in the story, verse 32, the disciples, they say to one another, did not our hearts burn within us 
as he talked to us on the road and opened to us the scriptures. Guys, this is the goal. This is kind of the end all be all that Jesus would so speak to us through the scriptures that our hearts would burn within us. That this wouldn't just be information or facts or knowledge for the sake of knowledge or information or facts, but that Jesus would speak to us through the scriptures. That God's word would come alive to us, that our hearts would burn within us, that there would be this transformation from the inside out. There would be this compellingness to Jesus through the scriptures that would draw us to deeper communion and fellowship with him. That my prayer for you and for me is that as we think about going into 2021, that for each of us here, that our hearts would burn within us as Jesus speaks to us through the scriptures. Whether that's in the morning in your own private quiet time, whether that's you gathering with your well community, or whether that's us going through the Old Testament on Sunday mornings, that God would speak to us and reveal himself to us in such a way that there would be this deep transformation from the inside out, that our hearts would burn within us. That's my prayer. That's my hope. I so love the scriptures, and I want that for you. I want that for all of us in this place. But look what happens next in the text. The story doesn't end here. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, Jesus, acted as if he were going a little farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. I mean, what a fascinating story, right? Here Jesus, he's at the table with them. He breaks the bread. The disciples now recognize, wait a second, this is Jesus. And then poof, he's gone. He vanishes, the text says, from their sight. Now what's happening here? What's going on in this part of the narrative? Well, think about, if you've been reading through the book of Luke, the last time that Jesus was at table with someone, when was the last time that he was at a meal with someone He took some bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread and gave it to his followers. When was the last time that it happened? The Last Supper, right? The communion meal, just a couple chapters ago, right before Jesus would be executed on the cross. And here, Jesus is reminding his disciples, this is who I truly am. That the core of who I am as as the Messiah, as the Redeemer, is the one who self-sacrifices himself for for the sake of others. At the core of who Jesus is, is yes, that he is a prophet, he is a teacher, he is one who does all these mighty deeds. But at the core of who he is, is his self-sacrificial love. And by breaking the bread, by tangibly showing them that, the disciples recognize, it, it becomes clear to them, this is who Jesus is. But that's not all. There's more going on here in this story. Another kind of trivia question for you. Can you think of another time in the scriptures besides the Last Supper, where there was some food that was taken and eaten and then given to someone else and eyes were opened as a result of that. Can you think of another narrative in Scripture where there was some taking of food, eating of food, and then giving it to someone else and then eyes were opened? Well, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden... The text says this, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was there, and he ate, and the eyes of them were both opened. Now, what's going on here? Now, this is fascinating. I'm not the only one who thinks this. But what Jesus, I think, is doing here in Luke 24 is he's breaking the bread, taking it, and giving it to his disciples. He's reminding them that Jesus, he is truly redeeming everything, redeeming everything back that started in Genesis chapter 3. That Jesus is the one who is redeeming and, and redoing all of the mess that happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He is the one that is redeeming the whole storyline of Israel, and he is the one who, friends, is redeeming your life in my life. All of those choices, all of those areas, all of those decisions, all of those moments and spaces, all of the brokenness and the sadness that has been perhaps these past few months, that Jesus is in the business of redeeming that. And it's when we see that, and it's when we recognize that, we begin to see who Jesus truly is. That he truly is the one who is redeeming our past and our present and taking us into a brand new future with him altogether. Now, there's a lot of moving pieces here in this story. There's a lot happening here. Now, real briefly, I want to land this with kind of, I'm going to bring the alliteration piece into this here. Just a few quick thoughts to kind of sum this up and to bring this all together. Kind of three S's for us to think about how this might impact our everyday life. The first is sadness. Again, these disciples at the beginning of the story in particular, they are full of sadness and grief. And remember, the text says that Jesus himself drew near to these disciples in their sadness. And that these disciples stood still and they slowed down and that Jesus allowed them to process that sadness. You know, I think about all of the craziness of this year, how difficult it's been. And perhaps Jesus' invitation to you and to I is to slow down a little bit, to allow Jesus to ask us questions. How are we really doing? To allow that space to process and to go beneath the surface, if you will. There's a lot that has happened in this year. That's been hard, for sure. You know, the other day I was playing with Casey a little bit, and he was getting kind of, kind of tired and a little bit grouchy, and he kind of started throwing. He's three and a half. He started throwing a little bit of a fit and was getting kind of angry and started kind of verbally yelling, like just this, this loud kind of almost scary kind of yell a little bit. And I just thought, like, there's, there's something more going on than just the fact that his toy isn't really working and that maybe his sister's bother, bothering him a little bit, that, that, that there was something really going on beneath the surface, if you will. And I kind of grabbed Cason a little bit and hugged him and just kind of brought him close to myself and just like, hey, buddy, what, what's happening? What's, what's going on? Like, what, what's, why, why, why are you you're so angry? And the thing was, it wasn't necessarily that Keeson was angry in that moment. He comes back and he says to me, Daddy, I- I'm just sad. I'm sad. And that for him, the actions that he was doing wasn't the, the deep core thing. There was something beneath the surface there. And giving him that space to kind of process that allowed him to, to share. Like, you know what? He was sad. He's sad about not being able to see Grandma and Grandpa. He's sad that, you know, he can't see his friends as much as he he wants to. And I think for many of us, that might speak a little bit to where we're at. That beneath the surface, there's some sadness. And just having that space to talk about that, to process that, can be so healing and transformative. And I want to invite you, that Jesus is inviting us, 
to be a people that are okay processing our sadness and our joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing, that both go together. I think of that Christmas hymn that we sang a few nights ago, O Silent Night, and that line, a weary world rejoices. How both weariness and joy, they go together. And so, friends, as we close this year and go into the next, may Jesus be inviting us to process both the sadness of this year and the joy that they can and do go together. So that's the first thing. The second one, scriptures. Again, we've talked about this a little bit. I'll be brief here. But I can remember a number of years ago when, the, when God really just impacted and really set my life on a different course. It was because of and through the scriptures. We were with a college group out in Friday Harbor up in Washington where I grew up. And it was this wonderful weekend time that we had together with our college group. And we were all gathered together at this kind of campfire time in one of the evenings. And I remember being at a point in my life just kind of anxious and tired and wondering, where in the world, God, are you leading me? Where in the world, God, are you speaking into my life? And what do you have for me? In one of those, those moments, this evening that we were together, the leader of our group, one of the, a good friend and, and, a, and a, someone I deeply respect, was talking to us about the importance of God's word, the scriptures. And he was reflecting on Psalm 119, the beautiful psalm speaking about the importance of God's word and how God's word is to be treasured and to be sought after and to be read and spoken about. And then he got to this line in Psalm 119 and he picked up a little lantern like this. And it's dark and there's, you can't see a thing. And he quotes the line from Psalm 119. He says, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And thinking about how this little lantern, a little lamp, gives just enough light for us to take that next step. Just enough light to see where is that next step going to be. And for so many of us, as we think about the scriptures in 2020 and going into 2021, the importance of being able to take that next step, that next daily step, daily engaging with the scriptures, recognizing that we need the scriptures on a regular basis to lead and guide us, that God would lead and guide us through the scriptures. And friends, I just want to challenge you, if, if you have yet to really engage with the scriptures, you know, oftentimes these New Year kind of things, it's always the time to like start the new year engaging the scriptures, but friends, seriously, as followers of Jesus, it is vital that we encounter God through the scriptures. You know, very practically, perhaps this week, I would encourage you, Psalm 119. It is, yes, the longest chapter in the scriptures, but perhaps take a few moments this week to really think about and pray through that, that, that text and allow God to, as the, this text in Luke 24 says, to have your heart burn within you, that God would really speak to the, the depth of your being as you engage with Psalm 119 and allow the words of the poet of Psalm 119 to be your prayer to God. That God, your word would be a lamp unto my feet. That God, Psalm 119, that I would hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And allow those lines to kind of cultivate a deep desire and prayer life that you would engage with the scriptures more in this new year. So that's on one hand, but then secondly, I want to also mention, like I mentioned a few moments ago, that we're going to be going through the Old Testament in 2021, and I'm super excited about that. I can't wait to, to start that journey. And so as we journey through the Old Testament, we're not going to necessarily be able to cover every single section of Scripture, so I want to invite us, as we're going through the Old Testament, to be reading along with us together, 
starting in the book of Genesis in a couple weeks and allowing us as a community, we're going to have a kind of a, a, a guide or a reading plan to go along with that, to allow us as a community together to be reading the text that we're going to be not only talking about on Sundays, but some of the text that we might have to skip along the way. So there's a couple of practical ways to engage with kind of what's going to happen with the scriptures. But lastly, the last one, sight. Thinking about how these disciples, at the beginning of this story, they did not recognize and they did not see Jesus. But by the end, they recognize who Jesus truly is. And to think about, you know, New Year's is often a time for like resolutions and goals and changes. But I know for myself, and I pray this for you, that at the top of that list would be a deep desire to see Jesus more clearly in this coming year. That our vision, that our aim, that our desire, our goal would be to see and know him above all other things. And I think about, to to close, that, that beautiful hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And thinking about that, Jesus, you would be my vision. You would be where my eyes are set in this coming year. With all of the craziness, with all of the things that are happening, that have happened and will continue to happen in this world. May our eyes and our focus be on Jesus himself. So as we think about the sadness that we are invited to process and that Jesus is inviting us to the scriptures, may in the end our goal be to see Jesus more clearly. With that, let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you, God, that you are right there with us, that you yourself are drawing near to us in our sadness and our disappointment. And God, would you help us in this coming year? Would you, God, help us, help us to see you more clearly, to know you in a deeper way? We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.